Psalm 119. Now, you may be aware that there are 176 verses in Psalm 119. You may also be aware of the fact that there are five verses where there is no mention of the Word of God. Such as verse 84, how many are the days of thy servant? When wilt thou execute judgment on them that persecute faith? However, there are five other verses where the Word of God is mentioned twice, such as verse 16. I will delight myself in thy statutes, I will not forget thy word. So there are 176 uh, references to the Bible in Psalm 119. There are nine different words used for the scripture, and interestingly, the first eight of them are given in the first nine verses, and then they're used, of course, scattered throughout the psalm. The other words, law, verse 1, testimonies, verse 2, ways, verse 3, precepts, verse 4, statutes, verse 5, commandments, verse 6, judgments, verse 7, word in verse 9, and then way down in verse 91, we're introduced to the word ordinances. Nine different words used, and a total of 176 direct references to the Bible. You sort of get the idea of what may be the theme of Psalm 119. It's all about the importance of God's Word. I want to speak to you this morning for a little bit on the work of the Word, how God uses the Word of God in our lives as non-believers as well as believers. I want to begin by reading the first eight verses of the psalm. Um, actually, I have written here besides Psalm 1, I think that there are 177 references, so somewhere there's an extra, must be a sixth verse uh, that has two mentions of the Word of God. Anyway, beginning in verse 1, Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are they that keep His testimonies and that seek Him with the whole heart. They also do no iniquity, they walk in his ways. Thou hast commanded us to keep thy precepts diligently. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep thy statutes. Then shall I not be ashamed when I have respect unto all thy commandments. I will praise thee with uprightness of heart, and I shall have learned thy righteous judgments. I will keep thy statutes, oh, forsake me not utterly. Uh, blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. <clears throat> a verse that has been a real comfort to me in the ministry of evangelism is Isaiah 55 and verse 11, where God said, My word shall not return unto me void, meaning empty or fruitless, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. In other words, God <clears throat> has promised to honor and bless His Word. God has not promised and is under no obligation to bless my outline, my organization, certainly not my jokes. Uh, my jokes are all pastoral jokes, right? They from preachers, so. <clears throat> anyway, and there's always there. Uh, God has promised to honor His Word. That's why when, for example, you give your testimony, it is important that you don't just talk about yourself, but that you talk about simply using your life as an example of what God has done in your life and what God has done for you, saturating with Scripture, then God will do it for someone else as well. And so, you know, uh, there's a lot of pressure on evangelists to produce. 
I, I remember one evangelist, and in fact, I was the speaker, and the preacher had the idea, well, we've, uh, we've saved all the hard cases for you. The people that we can't win to the Lord, we're going to take you to business so you can win them to the Lord. Guess what, folks? Guess who didn't win them to the Lord? The hard cases aren't for special people. The hard cases are for God. The easy cases aren't for God's people. They're for God. Let me share one instance with you. Uh, and one of the reasons I'm glad I, I kept my spring schedule of meetings, it was therapeutic for me in a spiritual sense. Uh, one of my last meetings was at a storefront church near Seattle, Washington. Had 22 people in the morning service. Had Sunday school, I could go here Sunday morning, then had dinner on the grounds at the building, and then I covered the supper, and then a 2 o'clock service, and no evening service. There was a couple, husband and wife, who had been busy throughout the last three or four Sundays from a Catholic background. And uh, they, they were looking for a church that taught the Bible because, in her words, the Catholic Church doesn't teach the Bible. That doesn't surprise us. And so she had come every service. Well, I was, after the afternoon service, I was sitting at my keyboard, my climbing taking putting some notes in my file and things like that. And then she came and stood right in front of me, and she looked down, and she said, you know, if I died right now, I'd go straight to heaven. I put my pen down and looked up, and I said, excuse me? Where did you say you'd go? I wasn't sure I heard her correctly. And she said it again, if I died right now, I'd go straight to heaven. I said, is that where you want to go? She said, no, that's why I'm talking to you. I said, oh, you mean you want to be saved right now? Yes, she said. That's why I'm talking to you. Like, don't you get it? <laughs> okay. Let's go over here and have a seat and sit down and, and let's talk about this and, uh, and have the joy of seeing her trust Christ as personal Savior. Folks, God does the work. <clears throat> God produces the fruit. All you and I are are fruit pickers. God's the one who produces the fruit. If I produce the fruit, guess what? It doesn't last. Neil Moody was walking down the streets of Chicago one time and old drunkard staggered up to him and said, Mr. Moody, I'm one of your converts. Mr. Moody said, you sure are my convert because you're not God's convert. And so, so it is. Uh, Dr. Roscoe Wilson challenged us preacher boys in Bible College. He said, gentlemen, remember it's the Spirit of God that does the work of God through the Word of God. So preach the Word. Good advice. Let me share with you then some ways where uh, how God uses the Word in our lives. First of all, it convicts of sin. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, we're told that the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It even divides us under the, the thoughts and the intents of our heart. In Psalm 119 verse 136, the Bible says, Rivers of waters run down mine eyes. Why? Because they keep not thy law. The Bible produces a conviction of sin. And may I say to you, dear friends, without conviction, there is no conversion. Without, uh, without repentance, there is no regeneration. Without a godly sorrow, there is no salvation. And the Word of God through the Spirit of God, actually it's the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, produces conviction in our lives. And conviction doesn't always necessarily result in a lot of, uh, as we used to say, crocodile tears, but many times it does. It can be, and not always is, but it can be a very emotional time. As you realize 
what sin is and what it has done to your life and how it has separated you from God. Now, sin does not condemn you to hell. Please understand that, folks. What condemns a person to hell is their rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, Christ died to forgive your sin. But it's your rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ, your sin bearer, that condemns a person to hell. Number two, it converts the soul. Go back to Psalm 19, if you will, for just a couple of hours. Psalm 19, and note with me, if you will, verses 7 and 8. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple, giving wisdom. If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of me, said the Lord. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Um, the uh, commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Notice the first part of verse 8, the commandments of the Lord. The statutes of the Lord are right. You know what that means? Whatever the Bible says is so. Now, if you don't understand what the Bible says, the problem's not with the Bible, it's with you or me. If you and I don't like what the Bible says, guess what? The problem's not with the Bible, it's with us. I remember Jimmy Carter one time, when he was running for, for re-election, made a comment that someone brought up the subject about the Apostle Paul and his relationship to women in the church, because his sister was a was a faith-healing, charismatic preacher who died on the operating table. Not as Catherine Coleman died on the operating table. Anyway... Uh, he said, well, I don't, I don't agree with the Apostle Paul. Well, guess who's right and guess who's wrong? Uh, whatever the Bible says is so, folks, like it or not, you, you don't have to like it, you don't have to agree with it, you don't have to accept it, but you cannot deny what the Bible says is so. It will remain true long after you and I have passed through the sea. The Word of God is pure, enlightening the eyes, the, uh, the eyes of our spiritual understanding. Faith cometh by hearing. And hearing by the Word of God. Number three, it cleanses the conscience. Jesus said in John 15, 3, Now ye are clean through the Word which I have spoken unto you. Uh, during one of my summers, I had the, in between college and summer off, I got a job working in the shipyard. Uh, in fact, two, two summers I did that. One would turn out for the whole year. And I said, man, they're rough places. Blue-collar places to work are can be really nasty, but so can white-collar places. You know, the office can be as bad as the shop with profanity and immorality and pornography and the blasphemy and, and profanity and obscenities of, of the worst kind. You know, after I got saved, this, this, the, special, the special meeting for me all week was the prayer meeting. Especially the year I was out of college and working, Oh, man, you're with this wicked, ungodly crowd all week long. And prayer meeting, man, you get to, with God's people, it's like taking a spiritual bath and letting the Word of God cleanse your conscience. I've talked with several pastors over the years, a number of pastors who've been deeply enmeshed in, in heavy counseling. And boy, I don't know that I could ever do that. The baggage that people have, the need to submit to the Word of God. But some of these guys get having all this, this human garbage dumped on their souls and their minds, they have to go back to the Word of God and pray and get on their knees and let the Word of God 
cleanse their conscience from all the foul sin that people have opened them up to. Number four, it consecrates the life in John 17, 17. In what is known as the Lord's high priestly prayer, he prayed and said to the Father, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Now you and I are living in a day, by the way, you young people here are not growing up in the same America that us older folks grew up in. Uh, what's going on today, people would have been in jail for what's going on today. There was a time when even the unsaved person had a respect for Christians, those who were consistent in Christian, and went out of their way to apologize if they offended you by a dirty story or by an obscene term. Now, nobody cares. Now, it's okay to offend the Christian, but we sure don't want to offend the Muslims. Folks, it wasn't Christians that attacked us on 9-11. It was Islam that attacked us on 9-11. Islam is an evil religion. It is, you think Babylon and Assyria were bad. Islam is the most bloodthirsty religion in the history of mankind. And it is out to overtake the world. There are no peaceful Muslims. There are only patient Muslims. Patient till they take over. And when they take over, look at Dearborn, Michigan. That's one example of America. Folks, listen, sanctify them through that word. That word is truth. I've done some reading in the, in the Quran, even taken as literature. It's bad literature. The Bible taken as literature is magnificent literature. It excels all literature. And by the way, there's a consistency throughout the scripture from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. It's logical. It makes sense. The problem with many of God's people is we... We don't see that because we read a, a spot here, a verse here, a verse here, and we just kind of going like this rather than going all the way through from beginning to end and getting the birds of the overall picture of the Word of God and its message presenting Christ throughout. The, the world tells us today there is no absolute truth. Now wait a minute, isn't that an absolute? To say there are no absolutes is hypocritical because that is in itself a statement of an absolute. Women today say, it's my body. No, it's not your body. It's a baby's body. It's another person's body. Not your body. And I don't know if you heard that gynecologist who was giving a, a, a testimony before a congressional committee describing what an abortion is like and he brought some of the instruments in that they used and he described the pile of body parts that builds up in the tray next to him because he has to account for every part. These are the days in which we live where we call murder family planning. Planned Parenthood doesn't plan parenthood because they plan how to not have kids. We just kill your kid and then, and then you don't have to worry about that to take care of it. Planned Parenthood is nothing but organized, premeditated, cold-blooded, heartless murder. Planned Parenthood is trying to help me plan how I can have kids, not how I can destroy them. Sanctify them through that word. Listen, folks, the Bible is an absolute. Jesus Christ said, Thy word is truth. The written word of God. And then we have the personification in the living word. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, not a truth. 
Jesus Christ was, if you please, the very embodiment of the truth of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, please. This is a good one, because it's not original with me. Always nice when you can say something good that's not original, right? I heard a preacher say this, and I kind of, in my margin of my Bible, I wrote his name down, giving him credit for it. When I was reading a book of sermons from a couple hundred years ago, guess what I found? <laughs> so he got it from somebody else, and where does somebody else got it? I have no idea. But it's good. 2 Timothy 3.16 All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Or all Scripture, we might also put it this way, all Scripture is inspired of God. <coughs> and is profitable. For what? For four things. No. Number one, doctrine. Number two, reproof. Number three, correction. Number four, instruction in righteousness. Now this is what you ought to write down. Or take your bullet somewhere and write this down. Doctrine is what's right. Uh, we haven't heard much about promise keepers. I guess it's kind of died out now, but promise keepers was a men's movement, totally unscriptural and ecumenical. And one of the big tenets of promise keepers for the men was, it doesn't matter what you believe. I disagree. It makes all the difference in the world what you believe. The Bible says, if there come any unto you, and bring not the spirit of love and unity. Right? Am I quoting that right? Who said no? What does it say? Ah, if there come any unto you, and bring not this doctrine. You don't have anything to do with them. You don't bring them into the house, which was the meeting place of the early church. You don't even bid him Godspeed. You don't even say, God bless you. When you do, you are a partaker of his evil deeds. So doctrine is what's right. Reproof, number two, is what's wrong. We need doctrinal preaching in the church of America today so people will know what they believe and why they believe because the Bible says so. But also there are times when the pastor has to come into the sacred desk and reprove, exposing... What's wrong? Number three, correction uh, is is how to make what's wrong right. And instruction in righteousness is how to keep what's right from going wrong. Isn't that good? Doctrine is what's right, reproof what's wrong, correction, how to make what's wrong right, and instruction how to keep what's right from going wrong. Number six, it confirms the right. In John 8, 31, the Lord Jesus says uh, to those Jews which believe both and they were already saved, if you continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. Not children. Disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. What is truth? The word of God. How so does does the truth make us free from what? From the bondage of sin. From the bondage of bad habits. From the bondage of of unbelief and infidelity. From those things which are utterly displeasing to our Heavenly Father. And Jesus, if you continue in my word, that assumes you're already in His word. Then are you my disciples, my true followers. 
You know, there are many people who profess to know Christ as Savior who are not His disciples. I mean, they're not following Christ. They're doing whatever they want to do in their lifestyle. They're not disciples of Christ. Being a disciple of Christ means continuing in His Word. Uh, as Jesus said, if you love me, obey me, keep my commandments. Psalm 119, verse 105, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. And then number seven, it comforts the heart. In Psalm 119, verses 50 and 54, we read these words, This is my comfort in my affliction, for thy word hath quickened me, for thy word hath given me life. And then verse 54, Thy statutes have been my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. What better way to have each day than to have each day uh, in the Word of God, follow the Word of God, learn the Word of God, that we might live the Word of God and enjoy the blessings of God. Now, let me give you four responses that we need to have to the Word of God. Number one, it needs a careful consideration. In other words, what it says, having a proper, the theological term here is exegesis, or the proper explanation of the verse in the context in which it is found. Not making it say something it doesn't say. For example, to, to, to uh, biblically support stealing, let him that stole steal. No more let him work with his hands. Stolen punctuation, right? Uh, I actually heard of a preacher who preached the whole sermon against trading. It's like the Teamsters Union and the Teachers Union, etc. His whole sermon was all built against the trade unions. You know what his text was? Titus 1, where the Bible describing the office of the pastor, among other things, says, be no striker. <laughs> you ever preach on that something from that text? No. Folks, that text has nothing to do with unions. It simply means a pastor is not to be quick-tempered and ready to strike back. I mean, I'll be honest, there are some pastors out there who I don't believe are biblically qualified to be pastors, and, and their whole attitude is this, my way or the highway. And boy, if you cross them, boy, I'm going to strike back. I'm going to get you. I remember when I had a, a, a medical reaction to a medication that nearly killed me. Uh, three little pills, a year for each pill. It took me three and a half years to recover. For 18 months, I lost my ability to play all of the instruments because of this terrible condition that erupted. One pastor, oh, he was so adamant. Oh, man, you need to get a good lawyer. Why would I get a lawyer? <sighs> you know, well, sue that doctor. So that, so that company, the, the company that made the medicine, they didn't know how I was going to react to it. I can now have a condition of so rare there were only 28 cases known in the entire country. And mine was one of the even rarer ones that was a result of a drug reaction rather than having a genetic problem. Some guys are so quick to do that. Uh, so <clears throat> we need to have a careful consideration knowing what it says. 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. Here's the key: rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, folks, if it's possible to rightly divide the word, it's possible to wrongly divide the word. People who believe that you can lose your salvation, for example, don't understand the fact that 
that we are children of God, the day you can stop being the child, uh, the biological child of your biological parents is the day you can stop being the child of God. That new birth, folks, makes us an eternal relationship with God. Now, as, as my mother and father's child, I didn't always obey them. I didn't always bring pleasure to them. And so it is in our Christian life, but I didn't stop being their child. I'm sure there were times they must have thought, discussed with each other, are we sure this is our kid? Maybe they made a new supper last time. No, I was our kid already. If you knew my mother, you knew why I'm like I am. People say, I was in a conference one time, this preacher was really down on dispensationalism. I don't know what he was. He didn't know what he was, but he says, I'm no dispensationalist. I take the whole Bible. Well, let me tell you something, folks. I also take the whole Bible, but I am a dispensationalist. What is a dispensationalist? One who learns to rightly divide the word. In Sunday school, we used to sing a little ditty. I hope you don't sing it here if you thought it won't sing it anymore, because it's totally unscriptural. Every province of the book is mine, every chapter, every verse, every line. Folks, nothing can be further from the truth than that. Not every promise is mine. Every chapter, every verse, every line can benefit me, but it's not all to me. Let me give you an example here. Take the promises of God. Dispensationally, here's how it works. We have to discover the promises that are past, present, and future. The promises that are past are promises that God gave to Israel as a nation. They are no longer applicable today. And then we have the future promises dealing with the millennium and the tribulation and God's resuming His dealings with Israel after the rapture of the church. And you find these promises scattered throughout the Bible, but the present promises are found for us today are found primarily in the Pauline epistles, the apostle of the Gentiles. Now, the promises for the present, we're going to subdivide those into two further categories. Number one, unconditional promises, and number two, conditional promises. What is an unconditional promise? He that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's an unconditional promise of God. You must do nothing but simply believe and receive and act upon what you believe. But here's a conditional promise, and this may surprise some of you, Philippians 4.19. But my God shall supply all your needs according to His riches and glory. That is potentially for every child of God, but not realistically. Because you have to go back to verse 10 to get the context. And Paul was saying there that because the Philippians gave sacrificially, even not thinking about their own needs, they gave to support his ministry in particular, uh, sacrificial to the point where he, he describes as a sacrifice of a sweet savor in the nostrils of God and because you, uh, not what they gave so much as the, the way they gave as well as what they gave Paul said you've not considered yourself but don't you worry because of the way you've given God's going to take care of your needs now if you're not giving you have no right to claim that promise if you're not supporting the work of the Lord in and through your local church, that promise is not one you have the right to claim. Years ago, I was in a conversation with a friend of mine, and, and he was bemoaning the fact that he was having so many financial problems. And in the course of our conversation, not because I asked, it just came up that he wasn't tithing. I said, Brother, maybe that's part of the problem. You've not been tithing. I can't afford to tithe. I said, No, you can't afford not to tithe. And maybe because you've not been giving to God what is His, God's withholding His blessing from you. And I believe that is a biblical principle that is true. 
We need to rightly divide the word of truth. There is a secular worldview and there's a biblical worldview. And years ago, back when I was growing up in the 50s, during the golden age of auto making, the 1950s, the 19, especially the mid 50s, oh man, 55, 56, 57, the Fords especially. I mean, Chevy's, <laughs> Chevy's are made by GM, General Mess. Uh, Fords are made by Ford Motor first on race to A, man. <laughs> I'm a Ford guy. Anyway, people then, he I were once, many of them had come, like my parents, through the Great Depression, through World War II, through the Korean conflict, and then we were growing up under the leadership of one of our great presidents, Dwight Eisenhower, and uh, the, the war. we were at peace, we were beginning to prosper after the war. But even the unsaved person back then, in the early 50s, had a biblical, had, a, had a, in a general way, a biblical worldview. The Bible was a daily part of home room in public school until 1964. When did everything start going kaflooey? Mid-1960s, the sex revolution, the drug revolution, putting God in prayer, the Bible in public schools. That, go back there historically. That's when we started the downward the punch. God says, you don't want me? Okay, I'll leave you. Read the last few verses of Romans chapter 1. God gave them up. Not just arbitrarily. God said, listen, you want to live this way without me? Okay. But here's the pressure you're at. Now, folks, I mean, the people unsaved knew, knew basic Bible stories. They knew about, about the creation and, and, and evolution wasn't really being supported all that much until the mid-1960s where it really started to get a hold of public schools. And, and, uh, and, and people knew about the virgin birth and they knew about Jonah and the whale and and they might make some jokes about things, but they basically had a world, uh, biblical worldview. And if they offended a pastor with prophetic or a new Christian, they would apologize. Folks, now it's hard to find a biblical worldview even in a church. We, as God's people, have been more and more infected than we realize with a secular worldview. I actually saw a guy on the news holding the sign, Jesus comes back to this earth, we'll kill him again. Boy, that's scary. I would not want to be in that man's shoes when he meets the Lord. And one day he will meet the Lord. So what happens with our kids in public school especially is they're getting a biblical worldview here. They get the second worldview there. And they're trying to put all these pieces of the puzzle together and wonder why they don't fit because they're not compatible puzzle pieces. Number two, very quickly, it needs a careful or rather a continual meditation, contemplation. The idea of meditation. Psalm 119, verse 150, or verse 15 says, I will meditate in thy precepts. In Psalm 1, verses 2 and 3, he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. Why? He shall meditate in the word of the, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. The result that he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. We need to meditate on the word of God, not just read it, but think about it. Number three, it needs a close confirmation as we apply it to our life. In Psalm 119, verse 9, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy law? Go back to Psalm 119, verse 33, please. It needs a close confirmation as we conform our lives to it. Psalm 119, verse 33 and 30, uh, 33 to 35. 
the psalmist here basically says, God, I want you to do this for me. And here's what, here's what my response will be. Teach me, O God, the way of thy statutes. My response, I shall keep it unto the end. God, give me understanding. My response, I shall keep thy law. Yea, I shall observe it with my whole heart. No room for half-hearted Christians. Too many of them. Verse 34. Uh, God, give me under, or rather, verse 35. God, make me to go in the path of thy commandments. My response, for therein do I delight. John 13, 17. Jesus said to his disciples, If you know these things, happy are ye if, finish the verse, ye do them. Folks, happiness comes not from the knowing, but from the knowing. John 14, 15, Jesus said, If you love me, honk your horn. <laughs> have any of you seen that bumper sticker, honk if you love Jesus? No? Okay, you have? Well, I heard a pastor told me this happened to him. He was driving his car in town. It was a four lane, you know, two, two lanes each direction. There were spring days, windows were down. And he stopped on a red light. The car in front had a bumper sticker, honk if you love Jesus. So he hopped. And the guy up front gave him a filthy gesture, shook his fist at him, and cussed him out. Pastor was stunned. He followed the guy. The next red light pulled up the side and said, Hey, guy, I was honking the horn back there because you did anything wrong because I was mad. But your bumper sticker says, Honk if you love Jesus. And I love Jesus, so I honk. And the guy got all red faced and Praise the Lord, brother. Guys, probably as lost as a skunk. Listen, foul mouth comes from a foul heart. Obscene language comes from an obscene heart. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. And then in John 15, 14, Jesus said again to his disciples, Ye are my friends, if ye do whatever I command Are you walking with the Lord today in obedience to his word as you understand it? There are a lot of Christians who aren't. Let me give you one example. The average independent Baptist church has its largest crowd on Sunday morning. Generally, half that crowd comes back Sunday night. That means half of the Sunday morning crowd are people who are not walking with the Lord, not living a life of obedience to the Word of God, because the Word of God says we're not to forsake the assembly together of ourselves as a matter of something. And that's something means if you're part of the assembly, whatever the assembly is in session, you are to be there. Whether you're a member of the church or not, if this is where you regularly attend, you have a responsibility before God to be here this evening and Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. This is one of the very few, like one of two six-day meetings I have during the four months. All the rest are four-day meetings. And uh, you say, well, I've got things to do. I know you've got things to do. But folks, sometimes, let's be honest, if we're so busy because we're too busy. If you're too busy to be here for the services, uh, you're, you're too busy. Folks, these meetings are important not because I'm here, but because God wants to do a work in your life this week. And I don't know what that work is, but I do know this. The night that you least want to come, because oh, man, I'm so tired, I don't want to church tonight. You come, and I guarantee you, God will bless you. If you come with the right spirit, God will bless you, and you'll be glad you came. Now, I'm not here to entertain. All right, We're going to have a lot of special music with the various instruments. And uh, I think you'll enjoy the music, but that's not the main focus. That's just that's just an add-on, right? We want to worship the Lord in sacred song. By the way, uh, I don't know what your practice is here, but I'll just mention this now. That's one of the reasons why I discourage folks from, from clapping or applauding after special music. 
and the church has been played. It has been played, not performed. And when you go to a concert, you pay good money for a ticket, you applaud. That's a way of saying thank you to the performer for his performance. Well, when it comes to sacred music, it is an act of worship. And the best response is just to say the old-fashioned Methodist statement. We Baptists have a hard time saying Methodist statement. But the clap draws all the attention to the person, and we want the glory to God. I hope the meetings this week will be a blessing. I hope it will be a challenge to you, and I hope the Lord will do the work in his life. And he will. If you ask the two, if you're here on a regular, regular part of our services, just let's all together and pray. Yes,